0: You, have. you are now tuned in to the podcast,
1: just back and Let me take your far, far away, let what has to say. We would be honored if you would join
0: us. Greetings, Far, Far Away family. This is your host, Kyle, and you are now tuned in to Star Wars Audio Archives. I hope this transmission finds you well in your part of the galaxy. Out here on the Outer Rim, things are proceeding as expected. But I have an important update to share with you. This week's episode is going to dive deep into the story, and I am honored to be your guide. Because last week, we set the stage for today's journey, and I'm eager to continue. This story is filled with lessons and insight, and I believe by exploring it together, we can get a deeper understanding of ourselves and the Old Republic. So I invite you to join me on this serious and thought-provoking journey. Let's take a step back from every day and immerse ourselves in a galaxy far, far away. Are you ready? Let's get started.
1: The rest of the Sith Force had returned to the fleet, but Malgus lingered. He stood alone among the ruins of the Jedi Temple. He powered off his comlink, putting him out of touch with Imperial forces, and communed in solitude with the Force. Walking the perimeter of the ruins, he loitered over the destruction. Pleased at his victory, but flat with the realization that he had defeated his enemy, and no obvious replacement was apparent... He longed for conflict. He knew this of himself. He needed conflict. There would be more battles with the Jedi and the Republic, of course. But with the capture and raising of Coruscant, the fall of the Republic was a certainty. Only a matter of time. Soon his Force vision would be realized. Then... What? He would have to trust that the Force would present him with another foe. Another war worth fighting. Scaling a mound of rubble, he found a perch that offered an excellent view of the surrounding urbanscape. The cracked face of the statue of Odon Ur lay atop the mound beside him, eyeing him mournfully. There, astride the ruins of his enemy, Mulgus waited for the Imperial fleet to begin the incineration of the planet. An hour passed by, then another... And as twilight gave way to night, the number of Imperial ships prowling the sky over Coruscant began to thin rather than thicken. Bombers returned to their cruisers, and fighters took up not attack, but patrol formations. What was happening? The Imperial fleet did not have the resources to manage a long-term occupation of Coruscant. Imperial forces had to raise the planet and move on before Republic forces could gather for a counterattack. And yet... Nothing was happening. Malgus did not understand. He activated his comm link and raised his cruiser, Valor. Doth Malgus, said his second in command, Commander Jard, we've been unable to raise you for hours. I was concerned for your well being. I just dispatched a transport to search for you at the temple. What is happening, Jard? Where are the bombers? When will the planetary bombardment begin? Jard stumbled over his reply. My lord, I. Darth Angrel. Malgus's hand squeezed the comlink as he surmised the meaning behind Jard's stuttering response. Speak clearly, Commander. It seems the peace negotiations are continuing on Alderaan, my lord. Darth Angrel has instructed all forces to stand down until matters there crystallize. Malgus watched a patrol of Mark VI Interceptors fly over. Peace negotiations. That is my understanding, Darth Malgus. Mulgus seethed, stared at a smoke plume thrown up by a burning skyrise. Thank you, Jard. Will you be returning to Valor, my lord? No. But get that transport to me now. I require an audience with Darth Angro. The terms of the negotiations prohibited either the Imperial or Republic delegations from posting external security around the High Council Building and Compound. Instead, both had their extended delegations posted in nearby cities. Moving with force-augmented speed, Aaron easily avoided the Alderaanian guards posted on the grounds of the Compound. A canine with one of the guard teams must have caught her smith. It growled as she passed, but before the guards could turn on their inference scanners, Erin was already a hundred meters away. She did not exit through any of the checkpoints. Instead, she picked her way among the gardens until she reached the compound's walls, veined in green creepers blooming with yellow and white flowers. Without slowing, she drew on the force, leapt into the air, and arced over the five-meter wall. She hit the ground on the other side, free. To her surprise, she did not feel a pull to turn back. She took this as a sign that she had made the right decision. The high council building perched atop a wooden hill. Winding roads, steams, and scenic footpaths led down the hill to a small resort town nestled at its foot. Lights from the town's buildings blinked through the streets and other foliage. The susurrus of traffic and city life carried up the hill. It was late. "'but not so late that she couldn't hail an air car taxi "'and get to the spaceport before her absence was noted. "'Without looking back, she sped off into the night. "'When she reached town, "'she located a line of automated air car taxis "'parked outside an open-air eatery filled with young people. "'A Rodian chef manned the central grill, "'his arms a whirl of cleavers and knives. "'The smell of roasted meat, smoke, "'and a spice she could not place filled the air. "'Music blared from speakers,' the base causing the ground to vibrate. She kept her hood drawn over her face and hopped into the first taxi line. The anthropomorphic droid driver put an elbow on the seat and turned to face her. It wore a ridiculous cloth hat designed to make it look more human. Given her own fragile emotions, Aaron was pleased to have a droid driver. Droids were voids to her empathic sense. Destination please, They've seen spaceport, she answered. "'Very good, mistress.' The door of the taxi closed, the engine started, and the car climbed into the air. The town fell away underneath them. The droid's social programming kicked in, and it tried to make small talk designed to put a passenger at ease. "'Are you from Alderaan, mistress?' "'No,' Aaron said. "'Ah! Then may I recommend that you try—' "'I have no need for conversation,' she said. "'Please drive in silence.' "'Yes, mistress!' "'Once the taxi took position at commercial altitude and fell into a lane, "'the droid accelerated the taxi to a few hundred kilometers per hour. "'It made the spaceport in half an hour. "'She considered powering on the in-car vid screen, but decided against it. "'Instead, she looked out the window at other traffic, at the dark Alderaanian terrain. "'Spaceport ahead, mistress!' "'Below and ahead, the Essene spaceport,' One of many on Alderaan came into view. Aaron could not have missed it. Its lights glowed like a galaxy. One of the larger structures on the planet, the spaceport was really a series of interconnected structures that straddled 50 square kilometers. The main hub of the port was a series of tiered, concentric arms that twisted around a core of mostly transparisteel, which locals called the Bubble. It was very much a self-contained city, with its own hotels, restaurants, medical facilities, and security forces. From above, Aaron knew, the spaceport looked similar to a spiral-armed galaxy. It could dock several hundred ships at a time, from large superfreighters on the lower-level cargo platforms to single beam craft on the upper platforms. A tower for planetary control stuck out of the top of the bubble like a fat antenna. Due to the late hour, most of the upper docking platforms were dark, But the lower levels were bright and busy with activity. As Aaron watched, a large cargo freighter descended toward one of the lower platforms, while two others began their slow ascent out of dock and into the atmosphere. Shipping firms often did much of their work at night, when in-atmosphere traffic was reduced. Watching it all, Aaron was once more struck with the oddity of the fact that life for everyone else in the galaxy went on as it had, while the Republic itself was in grave danger. She wanted desperately to scream at all of them. What do you think is going to happen next? But instead, she kept it inside. An emotional pressure that she thought must soon pop an artery. Dozens of speeders, swoops, and loader droids flew, buzzed, crawled, and rolled along the port's many docks and in the air around the landing platforms. Automated cranes lifted the huge shipping containers carried in the bays of freighters. Even from half a kilometer out... Aaron could see the lines of people and droids riding the auto walks and lifts within the spaceport's central bubble. The whole structure looked like an insect hive. A portion of the bubble, near the top, housed a luxury hotel. Each room featured a balcony that looked out on Alderaan's natural beauty. Seeing them, Aaron thought of her exchange with Sayo. A Jedi must sacrifice, she said. She was about to do exactly that. I'm sorry, mistress, said the droid. Did you say something? No. What entrance, mistress? I need to get to level one, sub-level D. Very good, mistress. The air car descended from the traffic lane to stop at one of the entrances on level one of the spaceport. The droid offered his hand, which featured an integrated card scanner, and Aaron ran her credit card. The order would be able to track her from its use, but she had no other way to pay. She stepped out of the air car and hurried through the automated doors of the port. Once inside, she moved rapidly, barely seeing the other sentients on the walkways and lifts. Conversation occurred around her, but lost in her thoughts, she heard it only as a distant buzz. Music blared from a darkened cantina. A young couple... A human man and a serene woman walked arm in arm out of a restaurant, heads close together, laughing at some shared secret. Droids whirred past Aaron, carting cargo and luggage. Pardon me, they said as they whizzed past. Vid screens hung in strategic places throughout the facility. She eyed one, saw a view of Coruscant, which then cut to the High Council compound on Alderaan. She avoided looking at any other vids as she went. She kept her eyes focused on nothing, hoping that the late hour would spare her any contact with other members of the Jedi delegation who might be stationed at the spaceport. She feared the sound of their voices would pop the bubble of her emotional control. Hurrying along the corridors, lifts, and walks, she reached the level where she'd landed her raven and let herself relax. She raised her wrist calmly to her mouth, thinking to hail T-6, but a voice from behind called to her and shattered her calm, Eren? Eren the near. Her heart lurched as she turned to see Volan Soar, a fellow Jedi Knight, emerging from a nearby lift and hurrying to catch up with her. Volan's Padawan, a Rodian named Kivo, trailed behind him, a satellite in orbit around the planet of his master. Both wore their traditional robes. They wore their lightsabers openly outside their robes, as they would in a combat environment. She tensed. Perhaps Master Darnala had noticed her absence and deduced her intent. Perhaps Bolin and Kibo had come to stop her. She let her hand hover near the hilt of her lightsaber. by the time the transport set down near the temple Malgus had followed enough communication chatter to understand what had occurred and what he had learned only incensed him further he bounded onto the transport and stood in the small rear cargo bay leave the bay open as you fly he ordered the pilot over the transport's intercom my lord go to a hundred meters up in circle I want to see the surface. Yes, Darth MORGUS. As the transport lifted him away from the ruins of the Jedi Temple, wind whipped around the bay and pawed at his cloak. He stood at the edge of the ramp and used the Force to anchor himself in place. From there, he surveyed Coruscant, the planet that should have been destroyed. Most of the urban scape was lit, so night did not hide the destruction. A haze of smoke hung like a funeral shroud over the still-smoldering ruins. The air carried the faint, sickly, sweet tang of burned bodies and melted plastoid. He tried to guess the number of the dead. In the tens of thousands, certainly. A hundred thousand? He could not know. He did know that it should have been billions. Shafts of steel stuck like bones out of piles of shattered duracrete. Here and there, droid-assisted excavation teams sifted through the rubble, seeking survivors or bodies. Frightened faces turned up to watch the transport pass. You should be dead, Malka said to them. Not merely frightened. Quadrant after quadrant of Coruscant had been reduced to rubble, but not enough of it. Most buildings still stood, and most of the planet's people still lived. The Republic had been wounded, but not killed, and there was nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal. Malgus had difficulty containing the anger he felt. His fists reflexively clenched and unclenched. He had been misled. Worse, he had been betrayed. A score of his warriors had died for no reason other than to strengthen the Empire's negotiating posture. Sirens screamed in the distance, barely audible over the wind. Far off, unarmed Republic medical ships whirred through the sky. Speeders and swoops dotted the air here and there, the traffic light and haphazard. Mulgus had learned that Dark Angrel had dissolved the Senate and declared martial law. But with the planet pacified, Angrel had allowed rescuers to save whom they could. Mulgus imagined that Angrel would soon allow free civilian movement. Life would start again on Coruscant. Malgus did not understand Angrel's thinking. No, he did not understand the Emperor's thinking, for it must have been the Emperor who had decided to spare Coruscant. Nothing was as it should be. Malgus had intended, had expected, to turn Coruscant into a cinder. He knew the Force intended him to topple the Republic, and the corrupt Jedi who led it. His vision had shown him as much. Instead, the Emperor had given the Republic a slight burn and begun to negotiate. To negotiate. A squad of ten Imperial fighters sped past, their wings reflecting the red glow of a nearby medical ship's sirens. Smoke plumes from several ongoing fires snaked into the sky. Bulgus might have hoped that the Emperor planned to force the Republic to surrender Khorasan to the Empire, but he knew better. The fleet had temporarily secured the planet, but they did not have the forces to hold it for long. The planet was too big, the population too numerous, for the Imperial fleet to occupy it indefinitely. Even a formal surrender would not end the resistance of Coruscant's population, and an insurgency among a population so large would devour Imperial resources. No, they had to destroy it or return it and it looked as if the Emperor had decided on the latter, using the threat of the former as leverage in negotiations. The pilot's voice sounded over the intercom. Shall I continue the flyover, my lord? No. Take me to the Senate building. Notify Darth Angrel of our imminent arrival. He had seen all he needed to see. Now he needed to hear an explanation. Peace, he said. Zerid finally noticed the ping from Volta's planetary control. He watched it blink, half dazed, having no idea how long they had been signaling him. He shook his head to clear up his thinking, called up the fake freighter registry Orin had told him to use, ran it through Fat Man's cop. And used it to auto respond to the ping. In moments, he received approval to land and docking instructions. Welcome to Volta, Reddorf, said the controller. Set down on Yintel Lake, landing pad one eleven B. Zirid tried to let the heat of atmospheric entry burn away thoughts of Orin, of the exchange, of Ang Spice. He tried instead to focus only on the 100,000 credits that should be awaiting him. What he could do with them. By the time the ship cleared the stratosphere and entered Volta's sky traffic, he'd once more begun to distance himself from work and the persona that it necessitated. But stripping away the Vice Runner was getting harder to do all the time. The hole was getting too deep. The costume too sticky. He would be ashamed if his daughter ever learned how he earned a living. He gave Fat Man to the autopilot and went to the small room below the cockpit that he'd converted to his quarters. His time in the army had taught him the value of organization, and his room reflected it. His rack was neatly made, though no one ever saw it but him. His clothes hung neatly from a wall locker beside the viewport. He kept extra blasters of various makes stowed about the room, and a lockbox box held enough extra charger packs to keep him firing for a standard year. The top of his small metalwork desk was clear, with nothing atop it but a port cop and a stack of fraudulent invoices. Integrated into the floor beside it was a hidden safe. He exposed it, input the combination, and opened it. Inside was a bearer payment card with the mere handful of spare credits he'd been able to stash. And, more important, a small hollow of his daughter. Seeing the hollow summoned a smile, he picked it up. He always noticed the same three things about the image: Hera's long curly hair, her smile, as bright as a Nova, despite her handicap, and the wheelchair in which she sat. He could have chosen a hollow that didn't include the chair, but he hadn't. It pained him to see her in it, and it would continue to pain him until he got her out of it. And that was the point. The hollow reminded him of his purpose. "'He looked at the hollow before he went to sleep in his quarters, "'and he looked at it when he awakened. "'He hated the wheelchair. "'It was the sin he needed to expiate. "'Val and Era had been coming to see him on planet side leave. "'He'd still been in the army then. "'Val had been suffering dizzy spells, "'but she had insisted on coming anyway. "'And he, desperate to see his wife and daughter, "'had done nothing to discourage her. "'She'd had an episode while driving,' ...and careened into another aircar. The accident had killed Val... ...and left Era near death. Her legs had been crushed from the impact... ...and the doctors had been forced to remove them. He'd mustered out of the army to grieve for Val... ...and take care of Era. Not thinking much beyond... ...just getting through one day and then the next. He'd had no pension, no property... ...and soon learned that even with his piloting skills... He could not find legit work that paid anywhere near what he needed, and was going to need. Not only had ERA's immediate post-crash care resulted in enormous medical bills, but ongoing rehab cost just as much. Desperate, despondent, he'd taken a leap, jumping into the atmosphere and hoping he hit deep water. He called on some old acquaintances he'd known before his tour in the army, and they'd put him in contact with the exchange when he'd heard their offer, he'd hopped on the treadmill, thinking he could make it work. "'His debts had only grown since. "'He'd gone into debt to an exchange-owned holding company for Fat Man, "'and he pretended to have a gambling problem against which he sometimes took additional loans. "'In truth, the credits from the loans went to ERA's ongoing care. "'But he was treading water there, too. "'He could barely make interest payments,' And while he tried to keep his head above water, Era remained in a prehistoric, unpowered wheelchair. Xerid did not make enough to purchase her even a basic hover chair, much less the prosthetic legs she deserved. He'd once heard tell of technology in the Empire that could actually regrow limbs, but he refused to think much about it. If it existed somewhere, the cost would put it well beyond his means. He just wanted to get her a hover chair. Or legs if he could hit a big job. She deserved at least that, and he planned to see to it. The Ang Spice run to Coruscant was the start, the turning point. The front-end money alone could get her a hover chair. And with his slate wiped clean afterward, he could actually start making real credits without all of it going to paying down debt. Credits for prosthetics. Credits for regrown legs, maybe. He'd see her run again. Play grav-ball. He returned the hollow to the safe and stripped out of his work clothes, sloughing away Z Man, the Spice Runner, to reveal Zerid, the father, and dropped them into a hamper. After he landed, he'd activate the small maintenance droid he kept aboard. It would clean and sweep the ship and launder his clothing. He threw on a pair of trousers, an undershirt, and his ablative armor vest, then took a collared shirt from its hanger and sniffed it. Smelled reasonably clean. He swapped out his hip holsters with their GH-44s for a single sling holster he'd wear under his jacket and fill with an E-11. Then secured two E-9 blasters, one in an ankle holster, one in the small of his back. Era had never seen him holding a blaster since he had mustered out. And fate's willing, she never would. But Zira had never went anywhere unarmed. Before leaving his quarters, he sat at the port comp, logged in, and checked the balance in the dummy account he used with the exchange. And there it was. One hundred thousand credits, newly deposited. Thank you, Warren. He transferred the credits to an untraceable bearer card. It was more than he'd ever held in his hand before. Wrath sat on one of the many metal benches found in Yinta Lake spaceport on Volta. Droids sped past. Sentients went by in groups of two and three and four. Someone's voice blared over a loudspeaker. Like every spaceport on every planet in the galaxy, the place was abuzz with activity. Droids, olivids, vehicles, conversations. Brath tuned it all out. A large vidscreen screen hanging from the ceiling showed the latest news on the right side and the latest ship arrivals and departures on the left. Watched only the arrivals. The board tracked every ship to which planetary control gave docking instructions, the scroll moving as rapidly as the activity in the port. Vrath was waiting for one name in particular. An exercise of will, the firing of certain neurons, caused his artificial eyes to go to three times magnification. The words on the screen grew clearer. The hut's mole in the exchange had given Vrath a ship's name, which meant he had a pilot, which meant... He could find the Eng spice and keep it from ever getting to Coruscant. The Huts wanted the addicts on Coruscant freed of their reliance on their competitors' Eng spice, so they could be hooked on Hutt Eng spice, A new market for Huts, as Wrath understood matters. In truth, he found it surprising that the Exchange had been able to find the pilot crazy enough to make a run to Coruscant, a world on Imperial lockdown. The Exchange must have had a flyer with uncommon skill or uncommon stupidity. The overhead vid screen showed the same news footage that every vid screen in the hollow vid in the galaxy must have been showing. Another story on the peace negotiations on Alderaan. A Togruta female, Vrath knew she was a Jedi Master, but could not recall her name, was giving an interview. She looked stern, unbowed as she spoke. Vrath could not make out her words. The sound of engines and people made it impossible to hear. He could have activated the auditory implant in his right ear to pick up the bit's sound, even through the noise. But he really did not care what the Jedi had to say. He did not care how the war between the Republic and Empire went. So long as he could thread the needle between them and make his credits. He hoped to retire soon, maybe to Alderaan. If he could take out the Eng Spice, the huts would compensate him well. Who knew? Maybe this would be his last job after which he'd get drunk, fat, and old, in that order. He alternated his attention between the news and the arrivals board until he saw the name he was waiting for, Red Dwarf. He slung the satchel that held his equipment over his shoulder, stood, and walked to the Red Dwarf's landing pad. Lingering among the bustle, he watched unobtrusively as the beat-up freighter set down on the landing pad. He noted the modified engine housings, he suspected Fat Man was fast. He reached into his pack and took the nanodroid dispenser in hand. He ordinarily preferred to use an aerosolized version of the tracking nanos, but the port was too crowded for it. Ready, he waited. The Senate building came into view. A dome of transparisteel steel with a tower atop its center aimed like a knife blade at the sky. Most of the windows were dark. The transport headed for the landing pad atop the building. Halogens washed the roof in light. Malgus saw a squad of imperial guards, gray as shadows in their full armor, and a single uniformed naval officer near the landing pad. The officer held his hand over his hat to keep the wind from blowing it off. Malgus did not wait for the ship to touch down. When the transport was still 2 meters up, he leapt out of the open cargo bay and landed before the officer whose eyes went wide at the sight of Malgus's method of debarkation. The young officer, his gray uniform neatly pressed, his hair neatly combed under his hat, had probably not so much as fired a blaster in years. Malgus did not bother to disguise his contempt. He tolerated the officer and his ilk only because they provided necessary support to those who did the actual fighting for the Empire. Darth Malgus, welcome, the attaché said. My name is Rune Neil. uh, Darth Angrel. Speak only if you must, Rune Neil. Pleasantries annoy me at the best of times, and this is not the best of times. Neil's mouth hung open for a moment, then closed. Excellent, Malgus said, as the transport put down and its weight vibrated the landing pad. Now, take me to Darth Angrel. Of course. They walked across the roof to the turbo lift. Armored Imperial troops flanked the door to either side of it. Both saluted Malgus. Neil and Malgus rode the lift down several floors in silence. The doors opened to reveal a long, wide hallway lined with office doors to the right and left, and ending in a large pair of double doors on which were engraved the words, The Office of the Chancellor of the Republic. Two more armed and armored Imperial soldiers stood guard at the doors. The arc-shaped reception desk immediately before the lift, presumably the domain of the Chancellor's secretary, sat empty, the secretary long gone. Rune indicated the Chancellor's office, but did not move to exit. Darth Angrel has commandeered the Chancellor's office. He is expecting you. Malgus exited the lift and strode down the hall. The offices to either side of him stood empty, all of them showing signs of a hurried evacuation, spilled cups of calf, papers lying loose on the carpeted floor, an overturned chair. Malgus imagined the shock the occupants must have felt as they watched Imperial forces pour out of the sky. He wondered what Angrel had done with the Senators and their staffs. Some, he knew, had been killed in the initial attack. Others had probably been executed afterward. When he reached the end of the hall, the Imperial soldiers saluted, parted, and opened the doors for him. He stepped inside, and the doors closed behind him. Angrel sat at the desk of the Republic's Chancellor, on the far end of an expansive office. His dark hair, shot through with grey, was neatly combed, reminiscent of Rune Niels. Elaborate embroidery decorated the color of his cloak. His angular, smooth-shaven face reminded Mulgus of a hatchet. Art from various worlds hung on the walls or sat on display pillars. Bone carvings from Mon Calamari, an oil landscape painting from Alderon, a wood sculpture of a creature Mulgus could not identify, but that reminded him of one of the mythical Zillow beasts of Malastare. An opened bottle of blossom wine sat on Angrel's desk in a crystal decanter. Two chalices sat beside it both half-full with the rare, pale yellow spirit. Angrel knew that Malgus did not drink alcohol. Two large, high-backed leather chairs sat before the desk, their backs to the doorway. Anyone could have been seated in them. Behind the desk, a floor-to-ceiling transparasteel window looked out on the urban scape. Plumes of black smoke curled into a night sky, mostly empty of ships and underlit by the many fires burning across the planet. Malgus, the black lines of smoke looked like the scribbles of giants. A maze of duracrete buildings extended out to the horizon. Darth Malgus, Angrel said, and gestured at one of the chairs. Please, sit. Words burst from Malgus before he could stop them. We hold Coruscant in our fist, and need only squeeze. Yet I understand that peace negotiations are continuing. Angrel did not look surprised at the outburst. He sipped his blossom wine, put the chalice back down. Your understanding is correct. Why? Malgus put an accusation in the question. The Republic is on its knees before us. If we stab it, it dies. Using it as a lever in peace negotiations. Peace is for bureaucrats. Mogus blurted, too hard, too loud. It is not for warriors. Still, Angrel's face held its calm. You question the wisdom of the Emperor? The words cooled Margus's heat. He took hold of his temper. No, I do not question the Emperor. I'm pleased to hear it. Now sit, Margus. Angril's tone left no doubt that the words were not a suggestion. Malgus picked his way through the artwork. Before he had gotten halfway across the office, Angril said, "Adras has beaten you here.'' Malgus stopped. ''What?'' Adrass rose from one of the chairs before the desk, revealing himself, and turned to face Malgus. He no longer wore his mask, and his face unmarred and handsome like Master Zalo's, and with a neatly trimmed goatee, wore smugness with comfort. Malgus recalled the look on Zalo's face when the Jedi had died, and imagined replacing Adrass' current expression with one that echoed Zalo's death grimace. Doth Malgus, Adras said, his false smile more sneer than anything. I am sorry I did not announce myself before your... outburst... Malgus ignored Adras and addressed Angril directly. Why is he here? Angril smiled, all innocence. Lord Adras was giving me his complete report of the attack on the temple. His report? Yes. He spoke highly of your death, Malgus. Adras took the other chalice on Angril's desk, sipped. He. "...spoke highly of me." Malgus did not play Sith politics well, but he suddenly felt as if he had walked into an ambush. He knew Adras was a favorite of Angril's. Were they setting Malgus up? They certainly could use his condemnation of the peace talks against him. With effort, he got himself under control, and sank into the seat beside Adras. Adras too, sat... Malgus endeavored to choose his words with care. The attack on the temple could not have gone better. The plan I developed worked perfectly. The Jedi were caught completely unawares. He turned to face Adras. But your report should have been approved by me before it came to Darth Angrel. He turned back to Angrel. Apologies, my lord. Angrel waved a hand dismissively. No, apologies are necessary. I solicited his report directly. Malgus did not know what to make of that, and did not like that he did not know. Directly? Why? Do you believe that I owe you an explanation, Darth Malgus? Malgus had misstepped again. No, my lord. Nevertheless, I will give you one, Angril said. The reason is simple. I was unable to locate you. I powered down my Comling Choir. Adras interrupted him, and Mulgus had to restrain the impulse to backhand him across the face. We assumed you to be checking on the well being of your woman, Adras said. We assumed, Mulgus said. Do you presume to speak for Darth Angrel, Adras? Of course not, Adras said, his tone infuriatingly unworried. But when we could not locate you, Darth Angrel asked me to speak for you. And there it was, unadulterated and out in the open. Not even Mulgus could miss it. Adras had essentially admitted that he wished Mulgus' spot in the hierarchy. And Angril's participation suggested that he sanctioned the power grab. Malgus's voice went low and dangerous. It will take more than words to speak for me, Adras. No doubt, Adras said, and answered Malgus's stare with one of his own. His dark eyes did not quail before Malgus's anger. Angril watched the exchange, then leaned back in his chair. Where were you, Darth Malgus? Malgus did not take his eyes from Adras, assessing the post-battle situation around the temple, my lord, trying to understand. He stopped himself. He almost said, trying to understand why the empire has not raised Coruscant. Trying to understand the planet-side situation more clearly. I see," Angril said. "What of this woman, Adras mentioned? I understand from Adras's report that she was a liability to you during the attack on the temple." Mulgus glared at Adras. Adras smiled behind the rim of the chalice as he drank his wine. Adras is mistaken. Is he? ''Then this woman isn't a liability to you. She is an alien, isn't she? A Twi'lek?'' Adras sniffed with contempt, turned away from Malgus, and sipped his wine. The gestures perfectly capturing the Empire's view of aliens as, at best, second-class sentience. Angrel shared that view, and had just let Malgus know it. ''She is.'' Malgus answered. ''I see.'' Angril said. Adras placed his wine chalice on Angril's desk. An excellent vintage, Darth Angril, but right at the end of its cellar life. I think so too, Angril said. Let things linger around over long, and they can turn rancid. Agreed, Angril said. Mulgus missed nothing, but could say nothing. Adrass snapped his fingers as if he had just remembered something. Oh, Darth Malgus, I do regret that I had to refuse your woman treatment aboard Steadfast. A tick caused Malgus's left eye to spasm. His fingers sank into the arms of the chair and pierced the leather. You did what? Priority is to be given to Imperial forces. Adras continued. Human forces... I'm sure you understand. Morgus had had enough. To Angril, he said, What is this? What is happening here? What do you mean? Angrel asked. The Twilik woman is planet side, Adras said, as if no one else had spoken. I'm sure the care she receives will be adequate. I mean, what is happening here? Now, in this room? What is your purpose in this, Angrel? Angrel's expression hardened, and he set down his glass with an audible clink. My purpose? Who is this woman to you, Darth Malgus? Adras pressed. Her presence at the battle for the Jedi Temple caused you to make mistakes. Passions can lead to mistakes, Angrel said. Passions are power, Malgus said to Angrel. The Sith know this. Warriors know this. He fixed a gaze on Adras, and the words came out a snarl. What mistakes do you mean, Adras? Name them. Adras ignored the question. Do you care for her, Malgus? Love her? She is a servant, and you are a fool. Malgus said, his anger rising. She satisfies my needs when I require it. Nothing more." Adras smiled as if he'd scored a point. She is your slave, then? A mongrel harlot who satisfies you because she must? The smoldering sheet of Malgus's brewing anger ignited into open flame. Snarling, he leapt from his chair, activated his lightsaber, and unleashed an overhand strike to split Adrass' head in two. But Adras, anticipating Mulgus' attack, bounded to his feet, activated his own lightsaber, and parried the blow. The two men pressed their blades against the other before Angrel's desk. Energy sizzling, sparks flying. Mulgus tested Adrass' strength. You have been hiding your power, he said. No... Adras answered. You are just too blind to see things before your eyes. Malgus summoned a reverse of strength and pushed Adrass back astride. They regarded each other with hate in their eyes. That will be all. Angrel said, standing. Neither Malgus nor Adrass took his eyes from the other, and neither deactivated his blade. That will be all. Angrel said, as one... Both men backed off another step. Adras deactivated his lightsaber, then Mulgus. You should have sent her to my ship for care, Mulgus said, aiming the comment at Adras, but intending it for both of them. Angrel looked disappointed. After all of this, you still say such things? Very well, Mulgus. The woman is in a Republic medical facility near here. I will have the information sent to your pilot. Mulgus inclined his head in grudging thanks. As for you, Lord Adras, Angril said, I accept your report of the battle. Thank you, Darth Angril. Angril drew himself up to his full height. You will, both of you, follow my commands without question or hesitation. I will deal harshly with any deviation from that order. Do you understand? Angril had directed the rebuke at both of them, but Mulgus understood it to be intended for him. Yes, Darth Angril, they said in unison. You are servants of the Empire. Mulgus Stewing said nothing. Both of you leave me, now, Angril said. Still seething, Malgus walked for the door. Adras fell in stride behind him. Darth Malgus, Angro called. Mulgus stopped, turned. Adras stopped as well, keeping some space between them. I know you believe that conflict perfects one's understanding of the Force. He made Malgus wait a beat before adding. I will be curious to see if events validate your view. What events? Mulgus asked, and then understood. Angrel would let Adras make his play for Mulgus' role in the hierarchy. He intended to see who would prevail in a conflict between Mulgus and Adras. A conflict conducted in the shadows by proxy, according to all the ridiculous political rules of the Sith. Subtle, backhanded conflict was not Malgus's strength. He glared at Adras, who glared back. That will be all, then. Angril said, and Malgus walked toward the doors. Adras, remain a moment. Angril said, and Adras lingered. Malgus looked over his shoulder to see Adrass watching him. Malgus walked out of the office alone. The same way he had walked in. He had been made a fool and was being played for Angro's amusement. Worse, the victory he had so dearly won would be for nothing. A mere lever for the Emperor to wield in peace negotiations. After negotiations were concluded, the Empire would leave Coruscant. In the hall outside, he slammed a fist down on the Secretary's desk. Crack on the marble top.
0: Whoa, now that was seriously intense. I mean, I was not expecting all those exciting moments. It had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. Darth Malgus is seriously the coolest Sith ever. He is like the bad boy of the galaxy far, far away. But even with all his powers and awesomeness, this chapter still managed to surprise me with what he is capable of doing. I mean, the world of Star Wars is just so epic, and this story is no exception. It is seriously mind blowing. But you know what's even more surprising? The quote of the week. And this week's quote comes to us from Deepak Chopra. He said, if you focus on success, you'll have stress. But if you pursue excellence, success will be guaranteed. I want to share with you an important lesson about success and excellence. Often we get caught up in the idea of success, thinking it is the ultimate goal. But the truth is, success is not something that you can control or that is guaranteed. However, there is something that you can control, your pursuit of excellence. When you focus on excellence, you commit yourself to doing your best work and constantly improving. You set high standards for yourself and strive to meet them every day. And when you pursue excellence with passion and dedication, success becomes a natural byproduct. Let me give you an example. Meet my friend Brian, the entrepreneur who came up with the idea for Airbnb. Brian was determined to make his business a success, but he soon found himself overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. He was always worried about if the idea would work, beating his competition and impressing his investors. One day, Brian had a realization. Instead of obsessing over success, he decided to focus on excellence. He started by improving his marketing, listening to customer feedback, and fine-tuning his marketing strategy. He also invested in his idea and showed others how it would be profitable. As he pursued excellence, Brian found that his business had begun to thrive. Customers were happy with his product, his team was motivated and productive, and investors were impressed with his vision and dedication. Brian's business became a huge success, but he knew that his success was simply a result of his pursuit of excellence. Remember that success can be stressful and unpredictable, but excellence is within our control. Pursue excellence with a passion and dedication, focusing on doing your best work every day. Let success be your natural outcome of your commitment to excellence. And I think that's all for this episode. I can't even imagine what's in store for us in the next part. So join me next week for part five of Star Wars The Sea. We hope to see you there. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and it was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Deceived was read to you by Jason Ortega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.